0: So Deuteronomy chapter 16, starting in verse 21. You shall not plant any tree as an asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice... To the Lord your God an ox or sheep in which is a blemish any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God, if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant has gone and served other gods and worshipped them. Or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, or sorry, on the evidence of two witnesses, or of Three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If you can imagine with me for a moment, uh, a home. And within that home, there's a dad. And let's say the dad, day by day, goes about grumbling about his employer. And day by day, the dad goes about grumbling about different officials in the government. Additionally, the mom goes about day by day grumbling about her husband. Day by day, she goes about grumbling about managing the household. And now imagine with me, what is going to happen When the time comes for the children to obey, what are they going to do? They are going to grumble. And why are they going to grumble? Because their parents have taught them to. Their parents have taught them subtly that God's design is not good by grumbling about it. Their grumbling is said that God's design is bad. That life is really about us, not about God. And when things don't go our way, we grumble about it. And the problem here is not just that grumbling can be bothersome. The problem with the grumbling is that it is a worship problem. You're not giving thanks to God. It's not about general thankfulness. It's about thankful worship. The main point we're going to be considering here is that worship problems, idolatry, lead to destruction. So to get some context to where we are here uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 16 going into chapter 17, we are in a broader section of Deuteronomy that started in Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 that's going to go to the end of chapter 18. And this section is meant to be in parallel with the command from the Decalogue in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that reflects the command to honor your father and mother. So this whole section is about how God has given us the the spheres of authority that we have in the family and in the church and in the civil government. He's given us all these three spheres for similar purposes. They're not the same. But they have similar purposes. All of those spheres are meant to image God to those under the authority for their good and blessing. And by imaging that authority to those under the, under the, the, the heads of those spheres, we are being trained to walk out our lives in every sphere in submission as part of our ongoing worship of submitting to God. Submitting to authority is part of how we submit to God, and so that submitting to authority is part of worship. That's why it's essential that when we submit to the government, or if a wife submits to her husband, or children submit to their parents, or we submit to elders, we should do so with a thankfulness, a joy, not a, begrud- a begrudgement, because we are to do it as heartily unto the Lord as part of our ongoing daily worship. Amen. This helpfully informs how there are times we would resist an authority figure in one of these spheres, but the only time we would is if that authority, that authority figure has stepped outside the bounds of what God has called them to be as a head over that sphere. If we have been submissive and joyful in submission to that authority figure, it bears weight when we say, thus says the Lord. And so when we resist, it should not be for a... Selfish, standing on our rights, it should be, again, part of worshiping the Lord our God. Whether we submit to the authority or we resist an authority that is not submitting to God, we're doing all of that to worship God, not for ourselves as the ultimate end. And we know, and we see throughout Scripture, that resisting authorities in a pursuit of obeying God rather than man, oftentimes comes with a cost. Oftentimes a very steep cost. And what we can know is that even when that authority, even a civil government that's supposed to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil, even if that civil government is calling good evil and evil good, we know that in God's sovereign terms, for his people, he is using that evil ultimately for our good. Amen. The government cannot trump God, even as they pursue wickedness. And so we can know, even if we do pay a high cost for following God, God is doing good things for his people. So even in suffering, we can joyfully worship the Lord our God. Amen. So I hope everyone's profoundly uncomfortable, because that's how it is. Whether we're resisting or submitting, it's all for God and not for us. This should be humbling for us on every end. And what we're looking at here in the book of Deuteronomy, we're talking about these spheres of authority. We're talking about authority in general. And we talked about the last time we were in Deuteronomy, we talked about how in redemptive history, the way things started before the fall, it all started with one head over humanity. That is Adam, who is the head over all three of these spheres, the family, the church, and the civil government. And what Deuteronomy is in chapters 16, verse 18 through eight, uh, the end of chapter 18 is talking about, is talking about prophets and priests and kings as a way of hinting towards a new Adam, a better prophet, priest, and king who is in the end going to unite all those spheres together in a new creation as well. Amen. So we're talking about these different things, but it is oriented in a way so as to drive us towards our Savior. So we pick up now in chapter 16, verse 21. And this is what the word of the Lord says. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. So we talked about last week the installing of judges who are commissioned to pursue impartial biblical justice just as God pursues impartial biblical justice. And now we are being given the first and foremost law that these judges are to monitor in the nation of Israel. And what is that first and foremost law? It is essentially a small version of the first word in the Decalogue, which is to worship the Lord their God only. That is the most important law, to love the Lord their God. If you want to know the formula for making America great again, making Israel great again, making our church great again, making your family great again, it is loving the Lord your God. If we want to see change around us, we need to start by considering our worship of the Lord our God. We need to pray that God would make us faithful worshipers and that there would be faithful government officials, church leaders and family leaders to similarly lead those under their authority in their spheres to similarly worship the Lord our God. The The dynamic here of what God's specifically prohibiting, they are not to plant any tree as an ashra, and they are not to set up a pillar. Ashras are kind of understood to be a female sort of goddess. Pillars are meant to Represent a masculine form of idol worship, and in this feminine and masculine joining together of idolatry, it is a manipulation of idols in the pursuit of conjuring life apart from God. And why this is ridiculous for Israel to pursue is manifold, one of those primary reasons being that this nation was brought forward out of a man and a woman who were so old and barren that they were counted as good as dead. God made life that resulted in this nation essentially out of nothing, just as he created everything at the beginning, out of nothing. For Israel to pursue idols in this way, and if you've been following the the reading plan we have this year, you just saw this in Jeremiah 2, to pursue idolatry for the sake of life in this way is to ultimately, as God says in Jeremiah 2, to forsake the fountain of life. For broken cisterns that can hold no water. They will pursue life and find only death because of their departure from God. And it is departure from God. What's being laid out here is a sort of syncretism. And what I mean by syncretism is, if you notice, it says they're they're not to set up these trees or these pillars. Beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. They're going to make that altar. There's going to be a temple dwelling place for God with the people. Deuteronomy 12 showed us this. What God's prohibiting here is not just the forsaking of worshiping God, but trying to join things on to worshiping God. I'm going to worship God, but I'm going to worship some other things too. I'm going to hedge my bet in case God doesn't give me what I want. That's what's going on here. Syncretism is trying to worship God and a bunch of other stuff at the same time. And what that does is it renders your worship idolatry and unacceptable to God. Amen. We can only worship word God. I think there's a hint here about what's going on. We talked about this the last time we got together. We looked at, I believe, uh, Isaiah 11 and the stump of Jesse. We, you see this in Daniel 4 as well with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream about a tree that represents his kingdom. Trees in the Bible oftentimes represent kingdoms. And God's prohibiting them raising up a tree in their pursuit of idol worship. So they're not pursuing any idol worship. And he's specifically saying, don't plant any tree what I think that is communicating is that they are not to be pursuing their own kingdom. It is God's kingdom. When you set up your tree of your idols, what you're showing is that you're not really serving God. You are trying to serve yourself as king. There's one king, and we must serve in his kingdom. We must worship the Lord our God only. We must understand it is only from God that life and blessing comes. And as we worship God... And that knowing that he's the only one who gives life and blessing, we have to understand that he is the only one who gives ultimate life and blessing, the best blessing. He is not withholding from his people. He is giving them the best. We must worship him accordingly. These are things God hates. Verse 1 of chapter 17 additionally says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. God has made clear in Deuteronomy who they are to worship. The Lord their God. That is it. We talked about this in Deuteronomy 12. God has made it clear where they are to worship. Where he is going to establish his name to dwell amongst them. This is showing us that they are also to only worship God how he has said. You shall not sacrifice the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever. So this is the temptation. You think, well, I don't have any Asherah. I haven't set up any pillar. So I'm only worshiping God. What's the big deal if I shortchange and keep the best stuff for myself? We read Malachi 1 for a reason. God speaks to this issue that came up. Giving God defective sacrifices. The reason that's unacceptable is because it shows that we despise God's name by implicitly saying, God doesn't deserve the best. I deserve the best. It says, I don't trust that if I give my best to God, that he's going to be able to return to me what I give. That's what it says as well. He neither deserves my best, nor is he sufficient to return my best. And what's being revealed in that shortchanging of worship of God is that we have a covetous heart, which the Bible explicitly—you see this in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3— that covetousness is explicitly condemned specifically as idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It's idolatry without a necessary constructed idol, no asherah or pillar required. We need to trust that God not only can return and provide for us, but that he deserves our best, far above us deserving that best. And I, this is, I think, an important point for us to consider because I think this is a particular weak point for those of us who live in the United States. We, we have this attitude all too often that D.A. Carson outlines in his book, Basics for Believers, This is how we seek to interact with God. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance, I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. I think for too many of us, we think that we, because we don't have all the asherah and pillars, we don't have all the idols of the culture, we think we're good enough spiritually. We start to really enjoy as well the materials we have. And then we become the rich young ruler. We won't actually follow Jesus. And live in full submission to him and full sacrifice before him. We seek to pursue God, but we also want to pursue money and serve it as well. And what that reveals is that we want the bread, but not the bread of life. We want the benefits of discipleship without paying the cost of discipleship. We want the benefits of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross without bearing our cross and living sacrificially for him. In our profound and unfathomable pride, we seek to shortchange our creator and redeemer, the one who has given us everything we have. And instead of simply giving everything back, we approach Christianity in the terms of, I want everything I can get while giving as little as is allowed. And God's very plain about this sort of ultimate idolatry. That is an abomination to the Lord your God. And we need to be honest enough to know that this is true of every single one of us in this room. We all do this. We are all guilty. And I think the way this passage is structured is to remind us that we need a king who can offer an unblemished sacrifice and make us able to actually worship God the way that he deserves because we can't. We need a king that will make us able to worship God in purity and in fullness and with a thankful heart as well. Verse 2 says, If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden. And let's pause here to consider some things. So this, what we're seeing here is a callback to chapter 13 what they were to do when there's instances of idolatry now we're seeing from the judge's perspective how they're to carry out justice when these situations happen and this is showing us what do they do when the first word is not being kept in israel and consider what the sin is that's laid out here it is a sort of pursuit of idolatry that can even include worshiping the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which God has forbidden. He forbade, he forbade that going back to uh, chapter 4, verse 19. This, in chapter 4, this whole sort of warning is given about worshiping the sun or the moon or the hosts of heaven. And what, what we need to observe about that is God made those things in the heavens for seasons, for marking time. And what we just saw with the calendar for the festivals is that it's to mark time for the regular worship of God. Mm. These are good things meant to orient us towards worshiping God. And what God's saying here is our sin has the propensity to take that which is good and oriented towards God and to twist to bad and orient it towards idolatry. Mm. That's the power of our idolatry is to take things that are oriented towards God and are good and to turn them into bad oriented toward, towards idols. And and when God is giving them warning in chapter 4 about this, he says those things that you would worship the sun and the stars, they're going to bear witness about you mm-hmm. in the end. You might pursue them in idolatry, they're not going to be there to help you. They will show that you betrayed the Lord your God. And notice who this is a warning for. It's laid out. This is for any man or any woman. We have to understand that every person is a sinner. Men and women typically have different sin propensities. That doesn't change the fact that, that women sin. Lindsay and I were talking about a book uh, by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins, and we were talking about the sins listed in Lindsay was just commenting, like, a lot of those sins that Bridges is laying out there that don't get talked about are women's sins, or at least sins that are typically committed by women. And what Lindsay's point was, and I think she's spot on, we oftentimes don't touch on those sins because we don't actually want to help women in a way that would be offensive. God's being very honest here. Men and women are both sinners, and because of that, their sin will lead to destruction, and will, will, it will lead to hell for those who don't repent. We have to be aware of that. We have to be careful. We, uh, we were talking about this in sermon discussion over the last couple of weeks, the dynamic where we are idol factories. Calvin lays that out plainly, and He's right. Like we talked about, taking good things, turning them into things for wicked purposes because of our propensity towards idolatry. We have to be aware of that for ourselves and husbands have to be aware of that for their wives and their children to protect them and to shepherd them and care for them properly and biblically. Men need to be willing to be both leaders in repentance, knowing our own propensity to sin, but also to administer loving rebuke when it is necessary for the sake of protecting those under our care, including our wives. If we do not, we will follow the same pattern of folly that we see in Adam. He was there. He just didn't protect his wife. He didn't call sin, sin for her. And death ensued. We must not play the coward even as many in American evangelicalism will. And what we have to consider with that is, I don't say this cowardice piece lightly. When you look at Revelation 21 and you read the sins that are listed for those in the lake of fire, cowardice is the first one you're going to see. We have to be careful. So hear me clearly. We do have to lead. We have to address sin. I'm saying all that. But we have to do it out of a desire to love those under our care. Not to rough them up. Love, proper shepherding, loving God, loving those under our care, bearing with them patiently. And we can help in that pursuit by when there's times where we're in sin and someone points that out to us, starting with a thank you. Thank you for pointing that out to me. And I'm going to repent and address it now. And then for wives and children to do the same. Thank you for pointing out my sin. We must not be a people of, well, but here's all these excuses. Or the people who say, well, I'm not like that person. That's not for our benefit and good. Amen. When we do that, um, Lindsay and I and the boys have been reading through a book by John Downame called... "Oh, It's a book about anger. Um, something about killing unrighteous anger, I think, is the title. I can get you the title. It's very short and it's incredible. But what he points out is when we resist Loving rebuke. We are like a patient who has a good doctor but doesn't want to hear his diagnosis. That is what we do when we resist someone who cares enough to give us a rebuke. So God is giving these parameters about idolatry and about who it's going to apply to. He says, "If there is found among you, within any of your towns, this is verse two, that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman." Who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. God is giving the standard of what it means to execute justice. Even with something that is so offensive to God, he is not telling them they can make snap judgments. He said that they have to look at the evidence. It is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. You have to find evidence, you have to inquire diligently, and then you have to make sure it is true and certain. So evidence has to be present, and then that evidence has to be thoroughly examined. There's no short-cutting justice. Due process is part of God's standard of biblical justice. We see this with Social justicians that they want to make claims, provide no evidence, and rush to snap judgments without any examination of that lacking evidence. That is not something Christians should have any part of. It is not biblical. It does not reflect God's character. Because this is, this is sin specifically against God. And he's still saying, you have to have evidence. You have to thoroughly examine it. And it's sin against him. He is patient. But at the same time, there is a standard here. And the standard is this. If they have pursued this sort of idolatry and sin, there must be judgment. And I want us to observe, again, because we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating because I need the reminder at least. I think we all need the reminder. One of the most terrible things that can happen to us is for us to get what we want. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean. The end conclusion of the person who has pursued this idolatry is that they are to be stoned to death with stones, man or woman. And here's, here's where, this, where I'm going with this. Chapter 4, when he was talking about idolatry, talked about idols made of stones. Same word used here for stones. If you start worshiping idols as stones, you know what you start becoming more and more like? Stones. Your heart in Ezekiel 36, same word there becomes stony you have a stony heart and your end if you want to pursue a life of worshiping a lifeless pile of stones is to become a lifeless pile of stones it is terrifying for a sinner to get the thing that they want No, God had given them tablets of stone. Same word that's used earlier in the, in the Torah or in the Torah to talk about the stone tablets from Sinai. Those stone tablets told them what they were supposed to do about images. They were to be an image. They were to be an image that reflects the, the love of God and the love of neighbor. But the problem is in their sin, they needed a heart that would be circumcised and turned to flesh from stone. And I think this is being reexamined here for a few reasons, but one of them is, I think, Deuteronomy, here in the center of the whole book of Deuteronomy, is going to give the answer about who can do that heart circumcision for the people. Who can take that heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh? Who can circumcise their hearts that they would rightly love and worship the Lord their God? We'll have more to say on that in a moment. Verse 6, it says, "...on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses... The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So, what's going on here is you you not only need to have evidence, you need to have that evidence be thoroughly examined. And you can't just get away with having a little bit of evidence, you need to have a substantial set of evidence. You can't have one witness, you have to have at least two or three witnesses. And what can happen is, Through the examination process, if you're making a false claim on someone, if you're accusing them of of a crime that they're not guilty of, and it's revealed through the examination of of the evidence, Deuteronomy 19 is going to go on to show us that whatever penalty you're pursuing on that person, that comes back on you. We'll talk about this more, but Proverbs 19 is very clear as well. False witnesses will not go unpunished. God is rigorous in his standard of justice. And this is very instructive for all three spheres. <clears throat> this this applies for the family. When we are instructing our children, we should not accuse our children of outright lying or disobedience or disrespect if we don't actually have evidence to indicate that's the case. But at the same time, if we do, we need to act accordingly. Um, that's how churches are to operate. We'll talk about that in just a moment. This is how the government is supposed to operate, examining evidence, making sure there's... a a thorough due process given when there's accusations made. Now, in our current context, because this is a little different, when we're looking at Israel here and Deuteronomy 17, Israel is a theocratic nation. At this point in redemptive history under the Old Covenant, the church and the civil government are one. Israel is a nation, a holy nation, so they are both church and state together. With where we are, in redemptive history, the, the task of wielding the sword and executing capital punishment on those who would shed another man's blood or commit a capital crime rests with the civil government. And because that is their job is to wield the sword, we have to understand the government is not given permission to govern worship and to tell people what they are to worship. I do not believe personally that we should be using the government as a means of telling people that they should worship Christ. I do not believe that's the government's job, but I do believe it is the church's job. And at the same time, we should not, as Christians, in the name of religious liberty, pursue helping other false religions establish their buildings or whatever. We should have no part in that at the same time. So our job as the church is to proclaim the word. That is how we see this in Revelation 12. We proclaim the word. We achieve victory through the word of our testimony and by not loving our lives even unto death. We will win. And if no matter what our millennial persuasion is, we should all agree, Jesus is winning and Jesus will win. Amen. So we proclaim the word. And what we proclaim when we proclaim the word is who is offering right worship and who is not. That is the church's job. We might not wield the sword, but what we say is actually far more consequential in the end than what the government does with the sword. If you think about it, none of this is ideal, but if someone were to commit murder and they were to justly come under the sword for their punishment, they could legitimately repent and be saved Mm -hmm. and spend eternity in heaven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But someone who walks in sin unrepentantly and their church sends them out that person is on their way to hell the church is making a bigger proclamation person, someone can come under the sword from the government and still go to heaven if you won't be in good setting with a church that faithfully proclaims the gospel you're going to hell and I don't say that lightly let's turn back over to Matthew 18 this is, this is in the text this is in the Bible I am not making this up So Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I want to just make a quick note. Going to tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is, I think, meant to be understood in the context of what Pastor Jack started in verse 10 with us for. Talking about a shepherd who's going to go find that one lost sheep. He is going to that one sheep. If someone sins against you, your response should be to go to them so that they would be restored. They would be protected as a sheep that has wandered from faithfulness. So when someone sins against us, the, the typical gut response we have is to want to brush them aside or even to go to talk to someone else about their sin against us. And what that does when we brush them aside in our heart with hatred or, or if we go talk and slander or gossip is we actually just facilitate a faster destruction for that person and what god's standard here is is that we would be the sort of people who love one another as sheep to the point that we go find them for their good we're the offended party and our pursuit is for their good not for us to you know get them back let them have it no we're going to absorb even more and care for them even more So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We are to be a forgiving people. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, it's very clear. If you will not forgive those who offend you, you don't expect to be forgiven before God. It's very plain. The the story that Pastor Jack read at the end of chapter 18 further enforces that point. That unforgiving servant, he's not going to really find forgiveness in the end, is he? He's given so much grace, and yet he won't extend it to anyone else. Well, you're not going to have grace in the end, will you? God's very plain about these things. We are to love one another enough to be offended and still seek the restoration and forgiveness of the one who has offended us. So, again, when we're talking about rebuke in the context of the local church, if it's rebuke to put someone in their place so I can look good, that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is sin. Now, let's say you go to this person who has sinned against you and they will not receive what you're saying. You you need to bring along more witnesses. Verse 16 says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if there's a dispute about the the legitimacy of a claim of sin, you are to bring along one or two others so that there can be multiple witnesses. Now, here's the thing. You might very well, like we talked about, make a claim that actually is bearing false witness. You might accuse someone of something and it's actually not sin. Because the standard here is not whether I'm offended by someone. It's whether someone has sinned according to God's word. So like if, if we don't own this room, but let's say we own the room and then I come in and the carpets like some shade of orange and I don't like it. I don't have any grounds to go to anyone and say, hey, you need to repent about that orange carpet. That's not a sin. So the standard is God's word, not our personal ability to be offended. So if, if there's a question about that standard, you bring along one or two others, and then they are to examine. It's very possible that the one bringing the rebuke is actually the one who ends up doing the repenting if their whole rebuke was actually an unbiblical charge. But if that person is in the right and the, two, the one or two come along, they are to examine it. And then if the person who brought the charges in the right, they are to join in calling this person to be repent. To, to repent and to be restored. For their good. You're not ganging up again to rough someone up. It is m- multiple people getting the one sheep to come back. now, in our sin it's entirely possible that even with such a circumstance where there's multiple witnesses we might not listen it says verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector this is serious stuff so if someone's in sin they won't listen to the one person They won't listen to the two or three witnesses. They are to come before the whole church in their unrepentant state of sin, be called to rebuke by the entire congregation. And if they will not listen and repent, they are treated as an unbeliever. Because by their unrepentant sin, they have shown that they are an unbeliever. This is going to be very parallel to what we're going to read at the end of this passage in Deuteronomy 17. The whole congregation is going to execute the capital punishment on the individual who's in idolatry. The whole church is to make this proclamation together that this person who is committed to sin and not God is indeed an unbeliever. Look at what verse verse 17 just said this. If he refuses... To listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And look, verse 18 has to be understood in context with that. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what that means is God is saying your proclamation is a statement about where they stand as it pertains to heaven and hell. On earth you have said, don't expect to go to heaven because you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Jesus is saying that's exactly the case. That is recognized in heaven. Verse 19, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And I think what they're saying is, Father, show this person their their sin, and if they won't repent, please judge them rightly. Mm -hmm. And God's going to do it. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, through leading that person to repentance eventually. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I think that verse is meant to be understood as an encouragement to the church in this weighty responsibility of wielding the keys and making such big proclamations about who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. And again, again, We need to understand that we each have a propensity to pursue idolatry. These abominations, we all can and do commit these abominations. We all need the protective umbrella and fellowship of the church. This is why I continue to implore if you have not joined the church, please join the church. And it's not so Pastor Jeff and I can get something from you for something. It's nothing, none of that. I love you all and want you all to be as safe as possible. And in addition to your safety, consider that as you join the church in in formal membership, you now add helping hands to protect the other members of this church. Because if we all have to, in the end, call someone to repent, it is a grace and blessing to have many voices joining together to say, thus saith the Lord. There are times to leave a church, but like we're seeing here with church discipline, you had best have a biblical standard with abundant evidence to show why you would be making such a decision. Because the point of the church is not self-service. The point of the church is to glorify God and minister the gospel to others. So how do we do this faithfully? I'm going to give a few little points of encouragement. If you go on in Matthew and in Matthew 22, there's two great commandments. Let us always be focused on loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor as ourself. That is the point. Again, the church is not for our self-service. We should also take advantage of what we are called to do in the Lord's Prayer. We should be be pursuing and practicing daily confession of sin. Daily confession of sin. Forgive us our debts. And what we want that to do is many things. But one of the things we want that daily confession to do is to cultivate a spirit in us that is more offended by our own sin than we are by the sins of others against us. Amen. That's another thing from John Downey's book on unrighteous anger. We oftentimes, when we sin, very quick. Here's an excuse, there's an excuse, here's an excuse. When someone sins against us, indictment, indictment, indictment. Loving God, loving others, daily confession, that cultivates in us a quickness to forgive as we have been forgiven. And that is the spirit in which we need to approach the topic of church discipline. Let's go back over to Deuteronomy 17. Lord willing, pursuing church discipline in this way is how we can purge the evil from our midst to protect this body and to make clear proclamations for those who would wander from the faith. God says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. Now, when this is talking about this dynamic of making an, exact, an accusation of idolatry and then pursuing the capital punishment that is fitting for that idolatry, it's saying that the witnesses who said this person was indeed guilty, they don't get to run away to the back of the crowd. Blood's going to be shed because of what they claimed as a witness. And they will have to join in that bloodshed. If it's right, then they're simply obeying the Lord and worshiping him. But if they have borne false witness, they will now fulfill having guilty blood on their hands. Mm. Or innocent blood on their hands in these terms. Because the party that they are seeking to kill is innocent. They stand guilty with innocent blood on their hands. This passage is giving us much instruction about what we should be worried about most. And when I I pray for you all, the, the things on the list are just tremendous, legitimate concerns, all of them, tremendous trials. But what God is showing the people here in Deuteronomy 17 is that the danger that is posed to them as they enter the land is not the power of the Canaanites. It is the power of their own personal sin. The greatest danger to us as individuals, the greatest danger to us as a church lies right here with ourselves in our own propensity to sin. You've seen the terms. These are things that God hates, these are abominations. God is using the strongest possible terms to discuss sin and idolatry. And if it's left up to us to offer the righteous worship that god deserves we will never offer it okay. it will always be impure it will always be corrupted even the dynamic of offering we were, pastor jack was pointing this out if the standard was simply to find an animal that was perfect can you go really find an animal that has no blemish at all and is truly perfect mm. i i don't like that task <laughs> we can't But again, this passage is structured and placed where it is in Deuteronomy 17 and 18 to remind us that God has provided a prophet, priest, and king, a new prophet like Moses, to give such a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Stephen Dempster shows that the Old Testament is actually structured in this direction as well. Talking about the book of Kings. In the book of Kings, there's a king that's foretold in 1 Kings 13 that's going to come and destroy idols and lead in right worship. And his name's going to be Josiah. I like that name for some reason. When you go into 2 Kings uh, and you start looking at Josiah, he's described in Deuteronomy 6 terms. A heart, a soul, a might that is loving the Lord his God. And then... What, what he does, he fulfills that prophecy. And what he's doing is, just like Moses took that calf in Exodus 32 and pulverized it into powder and dust, that word for, for dust or powder, that's not used very often in the Old Testament. It's used twice in one chapter to describe what Josiah is doing with idols that had been raised in Israel, turning them into dust. What we're seeing with Josiah is an imperfect type and shadow of what we need. We need a king to come from David's line to pulverize our idols and lead us in biblical worship of the Lord our God. And indeed, when Christ comes in John 8, he comes showing that he is that light of the world. He's bearing witness to himself and the Father's bearing witness to him. He has the witnesses, but the witnesses are ignored. And he is sent to his death. But that death is that unblemished sacrifice. Hebrews 9 says, For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heaven sanctified for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. He has offered that sacrifice in such a way that we are able through him, the ultimate purifier, to serve the living God. He has made us those who were guilty but are now a kingdom of priests. And through him, we offer right praise because he takes that which we leave even now, tainted by our fallen flesh. He makes it pure and acceptable to God. And we can offer praise to our God. We can offer thanks to our God. And we can offer thanks to our God knowing that he, through Christ, is purging the evil from our midst. And he's going to bring about a new creation where righteousness dwells. Fully purged from evil. And what this text, I think, is beckoning us to now is to be humbled before God. To draw near to him through faith in Christ. And to praise our King who makes us holy and makes our worship acceptable to God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for your grace to send your son. To to consider the, the standard here, the capital punishment we deserved for our idolatry, but to know that that was paid in full by the death of your son. When we stand in his resurrected life in that newness of life that you've given us through regeneration by the spirit i am profoundly thankful for how you have given grace to your people so help us to abound in worship and in love for you that we would live holy sacrificial lives to please you in all things in christ's name amen